Welcome to Crossing Broad FC, episode 6 of our illustrious soccer show. We've got a Champions League recap. We're looking ahead at a what is going to now be a, a hotly contested battle for the Serie A crown. Some covering of the uh, Premier League to be done. FA Cup recap, Europa League, Arsene Wenger, and uh, a little bit about the CONCACAF Champions League. So, uh... This is uh, Crossing Broad FC, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, and I am Russell Joy at Joy on Broad on Twitter, joined as always by the illustrious Phil Kaidel at Phil Kaidel on Twitter. Phil, what's happening, Russell? How are you? I I am delightful. I don't know if I'm feeling quite as delightful as uh, Mo Salah right now, but I I definitely feel pretty pretty good. Well, Liverpool beats Roma five two at Anfield, and. Five actually sort of flatters Roma because it should have been eight or nine or ten. Sadio Mane actually got off to a very slow start in this match and missed a couple of chances he should have put away. Uh, Roma were good for the first 20 minutes, but once Salah found the net the first time and Anfield started to rock and Roma started to look around at each other like, well, here they come. For a good 30 to 40 minutes, it looked like Liverpool could have scored just about at will. There's been a lot of talk this week about whether Mo Salah has joined the conversation of Messi and Ronaldo, and that's early, but on his form and the way he's playing right now, if you were talking about what it would cost to acquire a player, there's probably not an amount of money that Liverpool would seriously consider that anybody would be willing to pay to move him. Uh, Right now, Salah's value could not be higher, and in the next three to four weeks, If Salah manages to lead Liverpool, he's most likely taking them to a Champions League final. Man, if Liverpool wins a Champions League final, this could go down as one of the greatest individual seasons in that club's history, which is really saying something. Yeah, I mean, this this game was reminiscent to me of, uh, I think, Roma's first matchup uh, against Barcelona. And I kind of got the feeling as the game wore on that, you know, Roma, I think we had said... They needed to keep it at least somewhat close, keep it respectable, so that in the second leg, you might have a shot to shock the world again. And watching this game early on, it didn't, to me at first, it it felt like Roma was going to take a barrage of shots, but be able to, you know, maybe play the counter a little bit and and get one back. And it never happened, and, uh, you know, at least in the first half, it didn't happen. Um, It just looked like Liverpool was outworking them in pretty much every phase of the game. And I was at a doctor's office while the game was happening. So I'm sitting there streaming the game on a laptop while this old man looks at me and makes some comment about soccer. And I'm like, this is this is part of the problem. Old people not liking soccer. It's a whole thing. You know, I don't blame them. They're just set in their ways. Um, so then I tried to explain to this old guy uh, what was going on in this game. And um, eventually he said, Russ, I really don't care. And I said, it's OK, Dad. Don't worry. <laughs> That's very well done. Yeah. It's not true, though. But uh, I, I was sitting at the doctor's office watching this game, and I jumped out of my seat a couple times. Uh, and and I, I kind of felt myself imploring Roma to actually make this game competitive. And, you know, it, it took until, what, the 80th minute for Roma to really get something going. And it's disappointing on a lot of levels, but, you know, because I was in the car for the beginning of the second half, I think the end of the first half, I missed the part where Liverpool, you know, got up to five. I thought, listening to it on the radio, that Liver- that Liverpool had only scored three. So when I was listening to uh, to Roma, you know, take one or get one back and then draw a penalty and net that, I thought, oh, it's 3-2. This is really a great spot for Roma. Only to walk into my house and realize that, no, it's 5-2, you dope. And, you know, when, when I'm looking at this, I still think that there's a chance that Roma can come back. Um, I, I don't think it's it's a logical thing to do to write off a team who came back against the Spanish champions and a team that I would argue has better top-end talent uh, and maybe even a, a more cohesive unit altogether. Now, I know that Liverpool's great. I know that they have the, uh, the PFA Player of the Year, uh, which I want to get to in a second, but... I still think, you know, 
ruling out Roma at this point would be an exercise in futility. I, I don't think it makes sense yet. Now, if they fall behind in this next game, they're, they're screwed. We know that. But if Roma comes out and can get a goal in the first 10-odd minutes, maybe this is a moment where Ed and Dzeko once again kind of puts the team on his back and, and gets the scoring going. If they, uh, if they draw to 5-3 on aggregate in the first 10 minutes, I'm not counting Roma out. I don't think anybody should. And if they end up somehow coming back and taking down Liverpool, um, they, that is really going to say something about this squad. I don't know how Roma thought they were going to go into Anfield playing three at the back and survive. Italian football is known for its defensive setups, which we'll get into some more of later about some of the other matches we talk about. I don't know why Roma thought they could play a high defensive line with three at the back and just play an offside trap and try to neutralize Mane, Firmino, and Salah in that way. It affirmatively did not work. And you're here saying, well, let's not count Roma out. The only reason we're not counting Roma out is because Klopp got a little too smart for his own good and took Salah off with Liverpool up 5 nothing midway through the second half. Those Roma goals only came when Klopp took his foot off the accelerator. Had I been Klopp, it's an easy second guess now. But I leave Salah out there. I try and get to six or seven. I try to make it to the point where the second leg is really just an exhibition. Uh, you're right that if Roma comes out and scores, let's say, twice in the first 30 minutes and keeps Liverpool from scoring, that it gets interesting, I'd say. But this is sort of the same position that Man City found themselves in when Liverpool uh, took the big lead into the second leg. It's not just that you need to score if you're Roma right now. It's that you can't let Liverpool score even once. If Liverpool scores in the first 30 minutes of the second leg of this tie, the tie is effectively over with the away goals rule. Roma's not going to score a handful of goals against Liverpool. So you can say don't count them out. I'm not counting anybody out because football is proven on any given day anything can happen. But to my mind, I am putting Liverpool in the Champions League final in pencil, and I'm writing it pretty firmly in pencil, not expecting to erase it. The uh, the one thing that I think came out of this, um, it, you know, in terms of like a, away from the field, but also kind of leading into it, was Mo Salah being named the PFA Player of the Year. And there was a little bit of an issue that I think some fans initially had in him going off to accept the award because it was in, it was so close to the first leg matchup against Roma. And, you know, in reading about this, I was I was wondering why Jordan Henderson went with him to uh, to go get the award. And it turns out that Salah was so dead set on not going to the ceremony unless there was a, a member of the team with him that, um, you know, he he asked Henderson to go. And Klopp, Klopp kind of had said in the uh, in a press conference leading up to it that he wanted Mo to go get the award and rush right back. And Henderson did an interview this week uh, where he, I think it was for Liverpool's official website, where he said that, you know, the the entire thing in, in this is that, you know, Mo was entirely selfless. Obviously, by rules, Liverpool couldn't vote for Salah to be uh, the PFA Player of the Year. They, I, I think he, Henderson said that most of the guys probably voted for Kevin De Bruyne. Um, but Henderson was, I guess, kind of shocked a little bit that, Salah didn't want to go and and make the moment about him, not because Mo Salah, you know, isn't a selfless player, but just because it's a huge moment in your life. And like, why would you want to share the spotlight? But I thought it spoke a lot to the character of, of Salah. And I think, you know, for any Liverpool fan who's worried that in theory, you know, one of these big teams, like another big team could come and try to hit Liverpool with a massive transfer offer. I think Salah is committed to the team long term. I mean, like this doesn't look like a guy who's, you know, ready to bolt for the Real Madrid's or the Barcelona's that are very likely going to try to, you know, put together the money or the PSG's who, you know, are already considering breaking Neymar's record to go out and acquire him. So I, I don't know. I, I think if I'm a, if I'm a Liverpool fan, I like Salah even more than I did before. And I think if you're a casual fan of the game and you kind of wonder if Salah is just kind of like going to be this like one hit wonder this year, um, you know, even even if he doesn't come back and, and match the goal-scoring output that he's had, you definitely, as a casual fan, have to have, you know, even more respect for him, I think, for, for taking somebody with him to the awards ceremony and sharing that spotlight. 
but taking those points sort of in reverse. Salah leaving Liverpool at this point in time would be craziness. There's a cautionary tale sitting on Real Madrid's bench right now for Salah if he thinks that it's going to be better and easier to go to a bigger club. Gareth Bale, at 28 or 29 or whatever he is right now, is a forgotten man. And three, four years ago, Bale had the same sort of star quality that Salah has right now, albeit on a lesser team at Tottenham. So if I'm Mo Salah, I look at my situation and I see that the club has enormous resources. They are on the doorstep of a Champions League final. They can reload again in the summer. But remember, they made a transfer in January and got Virgil van Dijk to shore up their defense, and it's made all the difference for them. A lot of their defensive frailties from the first half of the season, they're gone now. So if I'm Salah, I'm not going to have my head turned by any of these bigger clubs. From a character perspective, as a Man City fan, when I watch Salah play, and I've said this before, he is a joy to watch. He seems like a really nice person. Now, none of us, especially sitting here in the United States of America, know anything really about Mo Salah's character. We don't know what he does when he leaves the stadium when he's not playing. Obviously, when he's scoring goals and things are going well, he's smiling. And yes, a story like you told about him taking Henderson to that ceremony, it does speak very well of him. I believe wholeheartedly that Salah is a really good and decent guy. It would be heartbreaking to find out that he's not, but based on what we know and what we see, and again, it's limited, I believe in the guy. I think he's excellent. And he seems like the sort of person that at least for two or three years, Liverpool can build around. I would argue, though, Phil, in fairness, that while I understand your comparison to Bale, Bales hasn't been able to, to stay healthy at all. And that, I think, has been you know a major determining factor in his playing time or lack thereof when he comes back. I mean, it was last year, I think, in the Champions League where they tried to rush him back and he ended up hurting himself again. So I think, you know, I, I get what you're saying about Bale having been a massive star and, you know, them having paid a massive transfer fee for him. But at the same time, Salah very easily has a role to step into uh, at Real Madrid. And, like, Benzema needs to be replaced. He needs to be taken out behind the barn and, and put down for his own good. So, I mean, Salah, to me, just immediately slots in there. I don't think there's any chance that if he goes, he ends up on the bench. I just don't see it. I mean, they, they need production at that position. Or they need to, like I've been saying, they need to acquire a winger and, and move CR7 up top. But anyway, um, Salah, I think, you know, if he goes anywhere, uh, I certainly can't imagine that he would go anywhere else within England. So um, let's let's give, if if Salah ended up leaving... If Liverpool accepted a you know a, a an offer that they couldn't refuse, give me like the two teams that you would like to see him go to. Well, there's no question Real Madrid's at the top of the list because they need refreshing, and we're going to talk about them in a minute because they are also uh, on line to end up in a Champions League final against of all teams Liverpool. So Real Madrid would be the top of the list. They have the most resources. They have the most to gain, as you pointed out, by acquiring a player like Salah who has a ready-made spot in their eleven. You could make a pretty compelling argument that Barcelona should make a run at Salah. And it's one of those situations where not only will Salah help Barcelona and take some of the onus off Lionel Messi, but by acquiring him, you keep him away from Madrid. So while that may seem a little too pat an answer, I think it's also accurate. So it's pretty much Spain or bust? Well, yeah. He, why would you go to Paris, for example? You, every time a star goes to Paris they end up lost. You just established that Salah is not going to go within the Premier League, and I agree with you. There's no way Liverpool is going to sell Salah within the league, especially to, God forbid, one of the Manchester clubs. So where else are we left with? Bayern? I don't think Salah necessarily wants to go to Germany. You want to talk about a team that needs a refresher. It probably well, of course. Hurt. Yeah, but if you were most Salah, again, the player's wishes and what works for the player is part of this. And if you're Mo Salah and your agent says to you, hey, you got a chance to go to Bayern, what do you think? I think my answer is I'm really good right here, thanks. I don't want to go to Germany. If you're not going to send me to Spain, let's just see how long I can ride this at Liverpool again. Liverpool's ownership group has very deep pockets. And this season that they've put together and this deep run in the Champions League is only going to help Liverpool's short-term ability to attract talent. It's going to goose up their revenues. This is not a good time to be saying, why sh you know, let's find somewhere else to go. In other words, why should Salah be looking around? He's in a really good spot right now. Yeah, I agree. 
I, I don't expect him to leave. It just thought it was kind of fun. Fun little fun little hypothetical. Well, you're anti-Liverpool, and that's okay. I mean, until about three weeks ago when City was in this tournament, I was anti-Liverpool, but now I've got to ride the horse. Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, let me just say really quickly, because I know that I'm the EPL hater here, I guess. Uh, I, I don't mind Liverpool because I like Klopp. And I think Klopp has done a great job of outmanaging pretty much everybody that he's come across. So I think it will be interesting to see, you know, can he take down the tactical genius that is Zinedine Zidane? I don't actually mean that. All right. Uh, next next matchup we had from the uh, Champions League, of course, was Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, a game that did not live up to the hype in many ways. Um, I think I said last week that I expected this to be more of a shootout than it certainly ended up being. 2-1 Real Madrid on the road. They go into the Allianz Arena, and they walk out uh, with a one-goal victory. Goals by Marco Asensio and uh, Marcelo. Bayern gets one. Uh, they let off the game with uh, Joshua Kimmich, who, uh, you know, the Wunderkind, as it were, who goes out and scores in the 27th minute. But I think maybe the, the biggest story of the day was Iron Robin going off within the first 10 minutes, uh, which totally changed the complexion of the game. Well, I hate to say that I told you so, but that's a lie. I love telling you that I told you so, and I'm going to do it again. Uh, on this show, I've said this Bayern side needs a rework and I have said that this Bayern job didn't look like the greatest job to me from the outside, which is why I think they had a hard time getting the manager that they wanted and had to settle for a second or third choice. They lined up in a Champions League semifinal at home with a 34-year-old Robin out there, relying on him not just to go 60, 70, 80 minutes, but to create and to score. And when he limps off inside 10 minutes, as you pointed out, not only does the entire complexion of the match and the tie change, but Bayern gets an ugly look at its future if it thinks that it can continue to run out guys in their early 30s year on year on year and compete. I think Bayern have been lulled into a false sense of security by how bad Bundesliga is this year and how bad Bundesliga has been comparatively for the last three or four years. When your results in the league continue to be 2-0-3-0-4-1-5-0, you think that it's always going to be that way. And when the Champions League comes around and the better clubs come, you think you have that third or fourth gear to clip it into to beat the better teams that come. And what Bayern has found out is it only takes you so far. Madrid walks in, and there's history here too. This is the sixth time in a row that... Madrid has beaten Bayern and the third time in Germany. So Bayern had to see this coming. They knew that they weren't going to be able to just handle Real Madrid. And man, when Robin limps off and they've got to change their tactics and their plans, they even get the goal in the 28th minute that they need. But I've likened this Real Madrid side to, uh, to use a hockey analogy, the New Jersey Devils of the mid-1990s. I'm just going to personally say I don't like watching Real Madrid play. Um, they're often low scoring. They have one or two stars and a bunch of workers behind. I've said this too. If, if, if Barcelona's on, I'm turning it on because Messi's electric and they've got other players and they, and they play a very attacking and entertaining style of football. They can also counter and all that good stuff. Real Madrid, a lot of these matches are just slogs to watch. This match was not a good watch either. And I don't expect to watch to watch the second leg of this tie and be particularly entertained either because I think Real Madrid will grind out another result to get to another Champions League final. But here's the thing. Just like those Devils in the 90s, this Real Madrid club is brutally effective. They grind you into little bits. Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't do much in this match, and they're still going home leading, and they're prohibitive favorites to go through to the final. And, and that's by the way, ultimately the, the what first, you want to do. The first match that Ronaldo... It hasn't scored in the season in Champions League, and the team is still able to overcome that. Um, I, you know what? It's not just the reliance on Robin. I mean, like, not only did that change their game plan, but they also lost Jerome Boateng and, and Javi Martinez. So, like, and it's a team that's also playing without Arturo Vidal. So, like, at the same time, while I understand your criticism of the Bundesliga, and to, you know, to quite an extent, it is fair, this is a team that's definitely not playing at 100%. I mean, it, 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 going into the game, I think having not had Vidal, uh, you know, available to you is a massive hit. 
But you take out Robin, which, you know, negates that entire flank, as well as, like, most of the uh, the dangerous chances that I think Byron has had in this tournament have come from Robin, you know, doing what Robin does, burning you on the outside, potentially drawing a penalty as he cuts in, uh, crossing the ball in, like, it's it's all gone, and it, and the idea of trying to replace him with Tiago was hilarious to me, like, tactically, I don't understand it. He's not nearly as dynamic, so that's not going to work. Um, and then you lose Boateng, which maybe is is an even more massive loss. Um, you know, it, it would it would be absolutely incredible for Bayern to try to come back and and win this against Real. I mean, the second leg I, I'm now expecting is going to be a slaughter. The only way that I think it stays close is if Bayern realizes that you know defensively they're not going to be able to hang in there. And they've got to push everyone up. And they, like, come out with a three-back set at the Bernabeu, which, you know, could pretty much be suicidal like Roma was going into Anfield with a three-back set. But, like, if I'm Byron, I'm considering it. I think you kind of have to. And you've got to, I think more than anything, the the most troubling part of this first leg was Robert Lewandowski's inability to to put a couple sitters away. I mean, like, there were a, a few balls open in the, in the six-yard box that should have been put away that it felt like nobody on Byron wanted to fight for and you know if if you turn this fortune around a little bit if you start to see a couple of those uh dangerous plays early in the game uh at the Bernabeu and Lewandowski's able to net one and tie this thing up on aggregate like then I think you're in an interesting spot like I think at that point um I think I think they make it interesting tells you all you need to know about Lewandowski's performance in this first leg of this semifinal that when you do a Google search for him, as I've done right now, most of the stories that pop up are questioning whether he'll be dropped for the second leg or whether he'll be at least on the bench and then maybe brought in late if they need one. It is what it is. Uh, Just to bang the same drum that I've been continually banging about uh, Bayern's age, and you kind of poo-pooed my statement that it's an old team and thought that maybe I was just overemphasizing the age of Ribery and Robin. Well... Lewandowski's turning 30 in August, and strikers can play into their 30s, but they're not the same. Lewandowski has been a great servant of Bayern Munich and a great player for a long time, but it's to the point where Bayern have what they have in him now. I don't think they could turn him into a huge transfer haul the way they might have two or three years ago. He's basically their player now, and they need to hope that he finds his shooting boots, as they say, in time uh, to save Bayern in this next leg, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I know that you uh, you hate when I bring these things up, but you know, in the league, he's got 28 goals this year. Um, he's got. Let me just do some quick math here. I mean, he's got five in the Champions League this year, which I think is under his past performance. Let me just look back to last year in the Champions League. He had eight goals at this point. Um, he hasn't. Let's see. What was the other thing I was looking at? Yeah, he's. Um, I don't know. I don't think his scoring has necessarily dropped off. I mean, he's been a 30-goal scorer in the league the last two seasons uh, since coming over from Dortmund. So, I, I don't know, man. Like, I I think that, that Lewandowski still has some real value out there on the transfer market. Again, I think I brought this up last week. Like, that's a transfer target for me if I'm Real Madrid. I mean, like, I'm, I'm pretty much going to say if there's any good striker in the world... They have to be on Real Madrid's target list. But, like, realistically, Lewandowski kind of fits a need there. Um, but the idea that that uh, Bayern should drop him from the squad in the second leg to me is just idiotic. Well, I didn't write those pieces. No, I know. I, but I'm just saying, like, that's dumb. I mean, Lewandowski on the day had two shots. One was on target. Uh, Ribery, who is ancient now, had the uh, most shots on the team at three. Got two of them on target. So... I don't know. It's it's going to be rough and I'm I'm just kind of wondering, you know, if you are uh if you're the manager of Bayern, do you continue to roll out the Jim Curtin patented 4-2-3-1 or do you mix it up? I think you have to mix it up. I think you've got to go with a more offensive set and I know that on the road that can be suicidal, but you know, unless the idea here is going to be to to pack it in, try to play a counter, which I don't think without Robin you're really going to be able to execute well. Do you play the counter? Try to get it to 2-2? Well, I'm this not, is where that, I'm not so dopey, sure. that dopey away goals rule causes all these problems, too, because Bayern can't just go for a one nothing at home and hope for extra time. They have to score at least twice. Yep. And 
as you pointed out, uh, going out with an attacking setup uh, when Real Madrid are playing at home with a one-goal lead and two away goals in their pocket could cause a lot of problems for Bayern. They could be out of this tie in the first 30 minutes of this second leg. Though I kind of think they have to do it. And I think, I think you know, one thing I've seen from watching Real all season, especially in league play, is this team doesn't bounce back in the way that past Real Madrid teams have. Like, I, I do think that if Bayern comes out three-back set, really forces the issue early on, scores an early goal, they'll make the Bernabeu go silent. I mean, that's been an issue all season. Um, they're... I, I don't want to compare them, but I think to some extent they're kind of like a Philadelphia crowd. They're boisterous. They're raucous going in. Something goes wrong early on, and they're kind of there's this moment that everything just goes dead until they feel like there's something worth cheering about again. So if, if you're buying and you're able to score early, I think the whole thing kind of flips on its head. Because then at that point, maybe you get that early goal. Uh, you try to push the issue until like the 30-minute mark. If it doesn't feel like you're going to have another breakthrough, you sit back, you get to halftime. And then you set the the very clear goal that, you know, you've got to just get one in the second half. And I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not going to rule Bayern out yet. But, like, depending on whatever the injury status of these guys are, which, as of right now, I have not seen any kind of an injury update. Uh, Robin had an MRI and apparently did not want to talk to the media or the paparazzi who were waiting for him outside of the office. You know, without knowing his status and Boateng and, and Javi Martinez's status, like, I think it's going to be, you know, it's it's hard to pick them to win but i will think that you know professional etiquette or whatever um and professional pride kind of playing in here i've got to think that they're going to you know at least keep it competitive just to close the loop on your analogy of the real madrid crowds and the philadelphia crowds the only amendment i would make would be philadelphia crowds until very very recently were beaten down by years and decades of disappointment and failure and the reason why philadelphia crowds turned on their athletes and their teams was because they've been disappointed so many times. Real Madrid crowds don't have that excuse. There's been plenty of winning. The problem with Real Madrid crowds is they're spoiled. If they don't get exactly what they want, if if they're not up 3-0 at halftime, they're looking around like, what's going on here? I paid for this ticket. These guys should be beating living daylights out of whoever we're playing, including Barcelona, including Bayern, whomsoever. Uh, and when you're led by a petulant superstar, uh, and I don't Whoa. want to get off on a tangent. I don't get off on a tangent, but when you're Whoa. led by a petulant superstar... That sort of attitude can creep into the fan base, and I think that's what you're looking at with Real. That's just a, a dirty, dirty low blow. To, it uh, hurts because it's true. He's the best player in the world. Anyway. For, for now. Well, you know, that's what they've been saying the last three years, and, and here we are. Still, still living that dream, Phil. Salah's going to take that crown on the final, but we'll wait for that when we get there. He's got to make the final, and your boy Ed and Dzeko is going to have something to say about that. My boy in Jekko. I do love him. Yeah, he's, you know, look, he's going to be uh, forever. I'm going to forever tie him to you. By the way, did you see the uh, the image of the guy who, uh, a South American fan who got the flamenco jersey tattooed all over his body? I did. Wasn't that just like, uh, would you ever do it? I don't have any tattoos. I'm never going to have any tattoos. So the answer is no. Okay. I mean, that just seems like hours and days worth of time to have them tattoo, you know, your team's favorite kit onto your body. does not seem like a uh, a good idea. Well, it's especially ridiculous since just about every club in the world changes kit styles every year, every other year, whatnot. I mean, if, if I wanted to do this for Man City, for example, City have had like 25 kit iterations in the 10-odd years that I've been watching them. How would I pick the one that I liked? Not to mention Sky Blue wouldn't look very good on me. It's fair. Uh, let's go on to Serie A. Serie A is the only league right now that has a legitimate competition going on at the top of the table. And last week I said, even though I like Juventus, I really wanted to see Napoli win because sometimes I just like to watch the world burn. And here we are uh, going down to the last four matches of the season, and we've got a real race at the top of the table. Uh, as of right now, 34 matches played in Serie A. Juventus has 85 points. Napoli, by virtue of a victory uh, at Juventus in Turin, they have 84 points. They're a mere point behind. And when you start to look at the schedules of these two teams going forward, uh, it is not painting a very pretty picture for Juventus. I mean, on one hand, Napoli has a, a pretty simple schedule. 
Uh, they managed to draw against AC Milan, which was a, a pretty positive result for them uh, two weeks ago. They beat Udinese 4-2, to and, uh, you know, of course, they beat Juve 1-0. So they're coming off of a nice streak in the league. Um, they haven't lost in Serie A since um, March 3rd against Roma. Going forward, Napoli's got four matches left. They've got Fiorentina, who currently sits uh, ninth in the league. They then uh, That's on the road. They then are home to Torino, who are 10th in the league. They're on the road at Sampdoria, who are 8th in the table. And they finish their season at home against Crotone, who happen to be you know, 17th in the league. On the flip side of that, Juventus has a a much more grueling matchup. Uh, You mix in the fact that they've got a Coppa Italia final against AC Milan on the 9th um, to kind of mix into the schedule. They have to go on the road to 5th place Inter Milan this week. Actually, today, if you're listening to this on Saturday. They're playing Inter Milan at 245 today. Um, Next week, they go go home to uh, Bologna, who are 12th in the league which is kind of a nice little letdown. Um, they've got the Coppa Italia final on the ninth, and then they go on the road to third place Roma, only to then come back home and finish the season to 19th Verona. I mean, strength of schedule-wise, Juve has to go and, and play Inter Milan and Roma on the road, fifth and third respectively in the league. The best team that Napoli has to play is an eighth place uh, Sampdoria side. Juventus's inability to win that game against Napoli at home is, uh, you know, potentially going to cost them their seventh consecutive Scudetto, and it's something that seemed inconceivable weeks ago. Are you surprised by this at all? Well, first of all, I was on here last week saying that Juventus would win the match with Napoli outright, and no one told me that Juventus was going to play that match for a draw at home, which is, to my mind, remarkably daft and is the reason why they're they're in this spot in the first place. Juventus conspired not to put a shot on target at home in a match where a win would have all but given them the title. And they got beat by an 89th-minute goal, which is what happens when you sit back and screw around and don't try to win against a good team. Napoli's not a great team, but they're pretty good. And to allow them essentially free reign of your place the way Juventus did. They get exactly what they deserved. Uh, I don't know. Did Gigi Buffon blame Michael Oliver for this loss? I didn't read the summaries afterwards. Yeah, I, but I heard he, I'm assuming uh, he, he did. Michael Oliver, <laughs> Michael Oliver uh, paid off the, the refs in this matchup. You get my point. He also uh, blamed Michael Oliver for the fact that Juventus only had 40% possession at home against this Napoli squad. In a must win at some level, but at the very least must draw a match. So that's embarrassing. The schedule recitation you gave us is very helpful. The one tidbit I kind of like is Juventus plays today at Inter, whereas Napoli plays tomorrow. So Napoli not only has the advantage of an easier run-in and the fact that Juventus has one more high-leverage match to play in the last couple weeks than Napoli does, but even in this next 24 hours, Napoli has a good chance to see Juventus drop points on Saturday and then go out on Sunday and either draw a level or, or pull ahead. Yep. It's it. Uh, look, we've been saying all season that like we wanted to have something to talk about at the end of the season, you know, in terms of domestic league and Juventus's complacency and their their poor tactics in this one. Allegri, I don't know exactly what he was thinking, um, rolling out the, uh, the the way that they did. And tactically, you know, even getting a draw against Napoli is a, is a poor result. I mean, like, the the facts still remain that Juventus was going to have a much more difficult schedule down the stretch. I mean, I think, if nothing else, you needed to beat Napoli just to give yourself a little bit of uh, cushion, you know, against a Roma side that you're eventually going to have to play and an Inter side that you're going to have to play on the road. And their inability to win, uh, I think, kind of, you know, if Juventus ends up blowing this after being ahead for you know a large portion of the season if Juventus fails to to win the league um I think we're going to be seeing some massive overhaul at the team I mean never mind the fact that Allegri is going to leave and they're going to have to find a new manager I have an idea for that in a moment but I I don't see a way that that Juventus is able to return a lot of these guys and so you know guys like Douglas Costa are going to have to wonder you know 
do I go back to Bayern? Like, do I, like, what do I do at this point with my career? Do I want to stay in Juventus? And I'm not so sure you do. And again, I said before, maybe a week or two ago, you know, for, for Gigi Buffon, it's a shame to have gotten knocked out of the Champions League in the way that they did. But my God, Phil, like, if, if they don't even win the league in his final season, I mean, has there been a bigger collapse? I mean, like, is there a, a worse way to go out? You know, we said when they got knocked out of the Champions League, well, at least they'll win the Scudetto again, and, and you know, he can go out as a club champion one more time, but it doesn't even look like that's going to happen. I mean, this is really going to have to test, you know, whether this team has the heart of a champion or not. And as of right now, you know, based on the way they went out in the Champions League and based on the way that they, you know, went out with a whimper to Napoli, I'm not so sure they do. It's another callback to my earlier analysis of sort of equating Buffon's end to Derek Jeter's end in New York. Uh, The Yankees were not especially good in Jeter's final seasons. And in his last season, they didn't make the playoffs. Uh, He went out playing well, but on a team that was going nowhere. And look, I'm talking about it today. So as much as Derek Jeter would like to think that nobody remembers it, I remember it. And as long as we're on that line, Gigi Buffon doesn't want to think about how people are going to remember him if Juventus blows this league title in the manner that it looks like they're going to. But it's going to leave a mark, a small one, but a mark nonetheless. That it will. Um, hey, you know, if nothing else, Phil, we ha- we'll have something else to talk about again next week. Um, I don't know. The way that I think these two matchups will go, I'm, I would not be surprised if uh, I don't think the Juventus game is going to be close. I think they're either going to go out and they're going to crush it because they know that Napoli is going to be sitting at home uh, today watching, uh, or it's going to go really, really poorly. Like, Inter, if you're Inter, you've got to remember that, like, they are only a point back of Roma and Lazio for third. So that, I think, you know, that's another part that kind of plays into this. Not only is Juve going up against two of these teams, uh, on the road, but Roma and Inter are fighting for that third spot in Serie A, so they they legitimately have something to play for. It's going to be really interesting coming down the stretch in Serie A. Um, the guy that I think that they should consider for manager, um, I, I I'd like to see Jose Mourinho move to Juventus, and I know it's not going to happen. But what's the one thing that people always criticize Mourinho for besides you know self imploding, calling out his his players in public? berating him his players and sometimes the fans uh it's that he parks the bus too much well parking the bus in italian football is just called football so uh you know you want to talk about a world-class manager and a big name to come in and take over juventus and uh who is not only a team who does well within their league but you know has gotten to the uh the semis or to the final or as it were this year the quarterfinals of the champions league it's uh you know it's a, a clearer road a clearer path to get to the Champions League final than you know he'll ever have as a manager in the Premier League. I know it's not going to happen, but I'd love it. I think it would be I think it'd be really interesting. I think it would kind of kill the uh, the way that people look at Juventus, and I think stylistically, I don't know exactly how it fits, but I don't know. Let's watch the world burn a little bit more. Juventus supporters would be very angry with me uh, for what I'm about to say, but I have to take those chances. Mourinho would look at Juventus as a step down in his career, and I think it would be viewed that way uh, on a global level as well. Manchester United are not what they've been in the past, but they're still Manchester United. So for Mourinho to leave United with a lot of the goals he had unfulfilled, which it would be right now, if he left United right now, Mourinho's tenure at United would not be looked at favorably. For him to then go to Juventus would be looked at as a step down. Here's the other thing I'll say. Yeah, Mourinho loves to park the bus, but he loves to park the bus, ironically, after he assembles world-class attacking talent and has the best goalkeeper in the world in De Gea, for example. And then, for reasons that only Mourinho can understand, he will then decide to park the bus and, and play too defensively. I don't know that what he does would work as well if the level of talent isn't as good. And it may not make sense to say that because people think that playing defensively is easier than playing offensively. But keep in mind, Mourinho has a really loaded roster right now and is still playing too defensively too often. So I don't know that he can take what he does at United and what he used to do at Chelsea and just transform it or transfer it onto Juventus and have it work. Uh, Let's talk about Mourinho's current team. 
Man United go into the FA Cup matchup that they have against Tottenham and walk away 2-1 winners, while on the other side, Chelsea uh, trounces Southampton 2-0 in a scoreline that I don't think was indicative of the uh, the match itself. Any main takeaways here as, as we watch United and Chelsea walk away winners? Well, let's start with this final, which is going to be a really exciting and interesting final. Manchester United and Chelsea in the final, even not knowing what's going on at those clubs, just knowing those two clubs are in an FA Cup final is enough to bring eyeballs to the screen. But the intrigues off the pitch for both of these sides are wild. We've already referenced a bit what Mourinho has gone through and done. He's constantly second place to Man City right now, which is, you know, man, primarily Mourinho's mandate is to catch Man City, and right now he's not close. And secondarily, Mourinho's mandate is to bring silver. Well, United bombed out of the Champions League uh, pitifully, and if they don't win this FA Cup this year, that's not going to be received as a, well, a very good season for Mourinho. Now, that being said, if he finishes second in the league behind City and wins the FA Cup, I think even... Uh, jaded United supporters would say, good season. City were the class of the league and far and away better than everybody, but you ground out an FA Cup and you got a second place and now we can reload in the summer and we'll try and get him next year. So there's a lot on the line for Mourinho in this match. As for Conte and Chelsea, this looked like a club that was in disarray a month and a half ago. And there were many stories written about how Conte was not long for Chelsea. And I still think that's true. I think Conte is leaving at the end of the season. But Conte and Mourinho, like Mourinho fights with everybody, Conte and Mourinho don't get along at all. So while Conte, as manager of Chelsea, might ordinarily be a bit distracted, maybe not that set on getting a result in this FA Cup final, he would love, Conte would love to stick to Mourinho on his way out the door and win this FA Cup for Chelsea and leave Chelsea saying, look, I won the league. I won an FA Cup. To the extent that you have problems with my managerial style, it's on you. And best wishes in the future, but I did what you paid me to do. So both these managers have a lot riding on this result. I think my biggest takeaway from the FA Cup this week was uh, something that happened off the field. And that was uh, something that Mauricio Pochettino um, kind of accosted the FA for. Uh, there was a tweet that went out during the game, or it was, no, I'm sorry, it was right after the uh, United victory over Tottenham. Uh, they tweeted out, Me, what's in your pocket, Chris? And then it's a video of Chris Smalling saying, Harry Kane. And um, Pochettino was, was pissed, man. Like he, <laughs> he went after the FA saying that we need to protect our English players. Uh, there were plenty of media outlets who were upset that Harry Kane was kind of put on blast by the FA as a guy who, you know, has won the golden boot or like, yeah, the golden boot of, uh, of, uh, England the last two years and is a guy who could, you know, potentially be a future captain of the, the English team in the world cup for, uh, the FA to have gone out and made a joke. Although I thought it was hilarious. Um, you know, it, it's not a, not a great look for the FA. And, you know, I think it, it kind of helped Pochettino because, you know, on one hand, you're watching as, as his team gets knocked out. And on the Premier League side of things, I mean, I never really understand why people get so hyped up about uh, Tottenham in the first place. Like, to me, they're just a team that always lets you down. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't totally know why Pochettino always appears to be this guy who, like, uh, you know, his, his job never seems to be in question. But kind of to the point you were making before, you know, Chelsea looked like they were in total disarray and had no shot of, of leapfrogging back into fourth. They're only five points back. I mean, I know that it'll take a, a little bit of an effort here for and a, a really hot streak by Chelsea probably winning out to do it, but, like, they're still in striking distance. Tottenham is three points behind Liverpool, but let's be honest. Like, the, the way that Liverpool is playing right now, I don't necessarily think they're going to be caught. So, um I say that even though Liverpool has uh, played one extra match in this uh, in this table in this season in the Premier League, but I I don't I don't get Tottenham, and I I don't think that you know Pochettino should be safe uh, in the way that I guess so many of the outlets you know appear to be making him. It seems silly to say, but with Chelsea five points back with four matches to play, 
They're only Tot- three. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's fine. My bad. Yeah, I, I have the, the table here. Tottenham's on 68 with 34 matches played, and, and Chelsea's on 63. So they're five points back. And five points would ordinarily be a pretty safe lead to have Tottenham keep that fourth spot. But look at the way they're playing. Um, look at the things they're getting distracted by. You told this story about this tweet that happened in you know the FA uh, releasing this tweet. Here's my response to that. Hey, Harry Kane, play a little better. Chris Smalling is not an all-world defender. Chris Smalling is under constant attack by Man United fans about some his some of his lapses and some of his dopey plays that he makes. And if you're Harry Kane and Chris Smalling, in fact, does put you in his pocket in an FA Cup semifinal, that's a much larger concern than somebody making a, a snide remark or tweeting something about it. Pochettino was probably pretty happy that the FA did something as stupid as that tweet because it's, at least to a level, taking attention off the fact that, as you pointed out, this is Spurs. They put themselves in position to succeed, and then they come up short. This is the eighth straight FA Cup semifinal that Spurs has appeared in and lost. Now, many of those semifinals occurred years before now, but a few of them were in relatively recent times. You start to get that stink on you as a club, of a club that can't deliver. And again, eight straight losses means that you were maybe not favored in all of those matches, but underdogs win sometimes. And Spurs was favored in this match against United and managed to lose even after Deli Alley scored early and gave them the lead that they theoretically should have been able to mistake themselves to. Remember, this match was played in Wembley. That's Spurs' home ground this season until their new stadium is ready. So Manchester United had to travel to Spurs, play Spurs at Wembley, where Spurs are theoretically very comfortable, even though I'm sure the ticket allocation was far more even than a typical Spurs match at Wembley. And Pochettino's side gets an early 1-0 lead and loses 2-1. That's not good enough. And Pochettino really does need to answer for that. The reason I think that Pochettino gets a break and that people get sort of uh, enamored with Spurs, especially earlier in the season, when they're playing well, they're like Liverpool light in that they have fast, pacey, skilled players and they have uh, a striker in Harry Kane who is still uh, a very, very good player and special on his day. And so it's fun to watch Spurs when they're playing well because they're going to beat like for example, a, a lower-level team, they'll hang a 4-1 on them pretty easily and score a bunch of goals. The problem is, in big matches, they're terrible. Uh, their results against the top six continue to be abysmal, and it, it continued in this FA Cup semifinal. Um, as we look towards the Premier League, obviously last week it was announced that Arsene Wenger was going to be uh, leaving his post at Arsenal, which was met by you know plenty of the teams in the EPL going on to social media and kind of paying tribute to all he's done for that that club. But in the the aftermath, the the few days that followed, Wenger started making passive aggressive digs at Arsenal, um mentioning the fact that it felt like he was being pushed out and he has since announced that he will be managing again next year, just not at Arsenal, which I think caught a lot of people off guard. People I think had kind of imagined that if he was going to be leaving, that that meant it was it was retirement time for and the fact that you know he's now talking about managing elsewhere and he's complaining that he was forced out at arsenal uh he couldn't just go out you know kind of looking like a classy fella he had to go and and kind of make it all about him which i think you know has been the thing the last few years is that it's always felt like it's it's arson wenger above the club and when you look at it there hasn't been a real you know string of success here in recent years that kind of make you appreciate you know what he had done for the club early on um i i am somebody who you know i liked a lot of the guys that arsenal had put together the last few years and i thought they massively underperformed and i'll blame their manager for it i said before that i think if if two years ago if you had just booted wenger and and brought jurgen klopp in i think with the collection of talent that he had that's a top three finishing team every year and, you know, I think the tactical genius that is Klopp uh, is just somebody that fits the modern game a lot better. I think Wenger's still trying to play a very outdated game. And I think ultimately, you know, he, he can't connect with his players. And I think you saw it, like, 
there were times that guys like Mezzeruzzo would come out and say that they really liked playing for for Wenger, but like honestly, what else do you expect them to say? I mean, like it felt like Wenger was being given a lifetime deal, so you're not exactly going to go out and be critical of a manager that you know the team has kind of put the manager way ahead of you know the best interests of the club. Um, I do like the idea of looking at who is going to replace him, but do you have any any thoughts on on Wenger before we uh, we move on to his his uh, replacement? Basically, Wenger brought Arsenal from its prior state up into the higher stratus of the Premier League. They were the Invincibles, which no one can ever take away. And he's been an excellent manager for a very long time. But as you pointed out, he stayed far too long at the dance. And to my mind, he exploited his past glories at Arsenal and extracted maybe upwards of a decade of further managerial tenure at Arsenal that he may or may not have deserved. And with every passing season, the withdrawals he made on the account that he had made deposits into early in his career became more and more difficult for Arsenal to withstand. It wasn't just the way he managed the club. It was, in recent years, their transfer decisions, the acquisitions they made or the lack of acquisitions they made. He always complained that he didn't have enough money. But if you don't have enough money, why do you buy Aubameyang after you bought Lacazette? Like, if you're trying to fix your house, you don't buy two faucets for the same bathroom. The way this has fallen apart at the end for Wenger at Arsenal is a symptom of the greater disease at that club, which is they're still looking too much at past glories. They don't have a great plan going forward. And they allowed a manager who had brought them so much success to basically emotionally blackmail them into keeping him on. Um, Wenger out as a sign, as a meme, is not something that you or I created or something that has happened organically in the last 12 months. It's been going on for years. But for whatever reason, Arsenal decided that the way forward was continuing to look backward. And they're paying the price for it now. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Uh, looking forward... The current favorites to replace him, Luis Enrique at 11-4, Massimiliano Allegri at 5-1, and Yogi Lowe at 9-1. Um, I think the guy that I'd like to see take over there would be Yogi Lowe, a guy who uh, you know has kind of revolutionized German soccer in a way, and somebody who I think would, would have some real tactical battles against Jurgen Klopp. I think that would make for a very cool subplot in the EPL. Allegri, I think, would be better served to uh, take the the job at Chelsea. Luis Enrique, I'm not even I'm not sure that he's nearly as good of a manager as some people consider him to be, and I wouldn't be impressed with with that hire if I'm Arsenal. I think if you've got Yogi Lowe and Allegri in on you know being potentially interested in that job, um, Luis Enrique might might grab some headlines because he managed Barcelona, but um, that would not be the guy I'd want to go for. Well, whoever Arsenal uh, hires to replace Arsene Wenger, and by the way, I also agree with you, the fact that Wenger is now bellyaching about the way he's been let go. Um, There have been greater managerial club legends who have been shown the door with less grace than Wenger. It's happened before and it'll happen again. And for him to say, I'll be managing next season, is sour grapes and is yet to be seen. You know, this is one of these situations where Wenger can't take just any job. He's not going to manage, for example, a second-tier club in the Bundesliga, for, you know, just to pull a league out of the air. Wenger will have too much pride to manage any side that doesn't have at least a whiff of a Champions League possibility. So I'm not sure that it's just so easy for Wenger to say, yeah, I'll be managing next year. We'll see about that. Uh, you're going to have to find a job that makes sense for you and a club that wants you. And we're not there yet. I have a. I actually have an idea for Wenger really quick before you answer the question. There's, I don't want him at Man City. Well, I, I think Wenger would be great. Uh, let me let me speak to Wenger really quick. Um, bonjour, monsieur, ça va? Would you like to manage at a place, a, a beautiful stadium by a body of water in a top four market, perhaps a top five market for sports in the United States of America? Now, granted, you would have to travel into a, a town that is known for its violence and 
uh, not much more. Would you like to manage a team that has a striker who can't finish, wings that can't give good service, a team that has a number 10 right now who uh, is no longer being called Borek, but boring, a guy, a team that features a U.S. men's national team player playing out of position as a glue guy instead of as a playmaker? Well, if so, may I welcome you to the Philadelphia Union? I think it'd be a great fit for Winger. And I think it cer- certainly wouldn't drive him nuts. He'd have a world-class goalkeeper and Andre Blake. That'd be exciting. How did I end up on It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia? I, I thought this was Crossing Broad FC. It sure is. I just, you know, I wanted to throw it out there. I think it would be a really great spot for him. I actually wouldn't be surprised to see an MLS team make a run at Winger, to be honest. Uh, I, I think that there will be teams that theoretically that have, uh, you know, deep pocket owners that could consider bringing him in because... You know, regardless of the way that it ended at Arsenal, it's still to the casual fan. You're saying that you're bringing in a manager from a top, you know, team in the EPL, and even for a casual fan, when you hear, "Oh, he came from England. England's really good at soccer." I, okay, like that. That gives me some hope. Uh, I, I'm not sure where it would be. Like, I don't know if Galaxy's looking to uh, to jettison their manager. I doubt it. I don't know if one of the New York teams would be considering such a thing. But you know, if you're in a pretty big market. And you're looking for a world-class manager, you know, I, I don't think that Winger's, you know, uh, at the top of his game any longer. I think that's pretty clear. But if I'm one of these teams in MLS, I got to think about it. If I'm Winger, I don't know if I'm considering a move to MLS, but um, I, I think he will be embarrassed wherever he goes in Europe. Like, I, I think the likelihood of him going to a mid-table team, or those being the only teams that present themselves as options to him, is pretty high. The only way that I could see this ending well for Winger is if maybe PSG's job opens up, he goes back to France, and you know he leads that team. Like maybe that's the fairy tale ending. Maybe that's the job that he's really gunning for. But if I'm PSG, I don't know if that's what I want to do. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, who who do you think should replace him at Arsenal? Uh, I would take Low if they can get him. Uh, I don't know if that's really what Arsenal's board would be comfortable doing. Uh, I would actually uh, go along with the Allegri choice. Uh, that would be my first decision if I were Arsenal. But again, this comes down to questions of, it's not just who you as Arsenal want to manage your club, it's whether these men are willing to come to London and fix what Wenger has broken. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it turns out. Um, I think the three men that we've mentioned uh, who are the favorites, it's going to be one of those three. Um, and look, Personally, for me, whichever of these three they end up with are going to be better than what they have in Wenger right now. And if that sounds disrespectful, I'm sorry. I love that you have posited uh, Wenger to MLS because it just continues the troubling narrative of MLS as a retirement league. Uh, Essentially, the place where every uh, finished, tapped out, broken down European talent comes to spend a few more years and cash a few more checks. Now, that being said... If NYCFC lose Patrick Vieira, that NYCFC job would probably make sense for Wenger, and I think he'd come. The question is, uh, would they hire him? Yeah, there's there's that. Um, I just lost the thought that I had, but yeah, okay, let's let's go with that. I mean, like NYCFC could be a, a really cool opening for him. Um, I want to talk really briefly about Wenger's current team, Arsenal drawing with uh, Atletico Madrid while being up a man for about 80 minutes of that Europa League game. Uh, did you have, I feel like you have a, a patented Phil hot take coming. So, um, you know, who else do you think would have been better at managing that ma- matchup? Is there anybody else who could have done a worse job managing a game up a man for 80 minutes uh, at home to an Atletico side in Europa League? Well, here again, Arsenal are home for the first leg of this two-legged tie with Madrid, and there may be no greater indictment of Wenger and no greater summation of what's happened to Arsenal in the last two or three seasons that Atletico goes down a man in the first 10 or 15 minutes, and the palpable feeling in the stadium is, how are they going to muck this up? It's not, we're going to go out and score four times and Madrid are screwed. There's almost a worse feeling in the stadium with Arsenal playing up a man than there would be if they were down a man or at even strength for the entire match. And sure enough, it took Arsenal far too long for Lacazette finally to score. And they couldn't even maintain a 1-0, which, by the way, 
A 1-0 against Atletico Madrid at home with Madrid playing down a man for 80-plus minutes, that's not really good enough. But if you win the match and you go to Madrid up 1-0, you can at least say, we job done. Now, at 1-1, because Arsenal can't get out of their own way and they they give up a, a goal from a broken play after a turnover, the way they always seem to do it, now they have to go to Spain. Atletico has the away goal in their back pocket. It's just a, it's hard to believe that this club with Lacazette and Aubameyang and Urzel and all the attacking talent they have couldn't take a gift. And by the way, the two yellow cards that uh, got the player sent off for Atletico were legitimate yellow cards. It was it was not a, a referee's gift that put Arsenal in his position. It was bad play by Madrid, but Arsenal didn't seize on it. Arsenal did not go for the jugular. They didn't get the jugular. And now it's looking like this last gasp that Wenger had, which was the possibility of winning the Europa League and getting Arsenal back in the Champions League and kind of leaving them in that favorable position on his way out the door. It looks like it's going to go up in smoke. You mentioned earlier about the Paris Saint-Germain job. Unai Emery is leaving PSG at the end of the season. Um, He's confirmed that. No one knows who PSG are going to go for. It seems a little too on the nose that Wenger would go and manage PSG, and I'm not even sure PSG would want him. But at some level, I think it would actually make a lot of sense because PSG are sort of a hot mess right now, and Wenger's leaving his situation in less than perfect conditions. So, you know, maybe uh, at some level they can marry their dysfunction and make it functional. It's a beautiful way to put it, Phil. Uh, last thing we wanted to touch on really quick was the uh, CONCACAF Champions League. Toronto FC go into Guadalajara and score two goals on Chivas. They force extra time. It feels like, uh, I, I don't know, I for, for a little while there, it, it certainly felt like Toronto had a chance to uh, walk away as the first ever MLS winners of the CONCACAF Champions League, only for this to go sideways for them to go to penalties. And um, your boy, your boy Michael Bradley, had a moment. First off, I'm giving Toronto FC uh, all the credit in the world. It was a bad week in Toronto with the van attack that happened. And we can only wish uh, solace to the folks who were affected by that. I love Toronto as a city. I've been there. It's a terrific place. I'm not sure that Toronto FC's players were, quote-unquote, playing for uh, the people affected by that tragedy. But it's a fun narrative for media people to talk about. And, in fact, they did. Uh, Toronto went to Mexico down 2-1 and needed to score at least twice to get in a position to get the penalties and exactly what they did. Uh, Toronto won that match in the 90 minutes, 2-1. And so now it's 3-3 on aggregate, and they go into penalties. Now, Osorio missed the first of the penalties for Toronto that ended up uh, putting them out of this and, and giving Chivas this this trophy, which, by the way, is pretty painful because this isn't even that great a Chivas side, and this was an opportunity for Toronto FC to carry MLS's flag into a battle and leave with a scalp. And they came pretty close, but they didn't get it done. You have alluded, though, to the fact that the final penalty miss from Toronto FC was from one Michael Bradley. Um, Wow, I can't believe that Michael Bradley would come up small in a big spot like that. That's so unlike him. Sad. I have uh, created a a quick list after I, I read the story of this match and found out that Bradley missed this penalty. I was thinking about the five athletes in sport that I would put in that spot ahead of Michael Bradley to take that penalty. And I'm going to throw some names at you. You let me know what you think. The first one is LeBron James. He's athletic. He's athletic. He's a winner. Uh, he had a game-winning shot this week. So, okay, yeah, I'll go with it. Yeah, he's, I mean, if, if, he's if got he, better clutch stats make, than Michael Jordan. Don't tell anybody. If he can make an off-balance 28-foot three-pointer to win a playoff game, I sure as hell think that if you give him a little bit of time to figure it out, he could find a way to, to steer a soccer ball into a net uh, in, a, in an unguarded situation with just the keeper to beat. Uh, the second athlete on my list I would take ahead of Michael Bradley to, to uh, score a penalty I need is Sidney Crosby. I hate you. Now, I, I say this because Sidney Crosby is not just a hockey player. There's footage of him just rifling baseballs out of the stadium at, at uh, PNC Park, where the Pirates play during batting practice. 
I think Crosby can do just about anything, and I know that's a sore subject because obviously the Flyers fell to uh, Sidney Crosby and the Penguins this week. White stings. But listen, here again, if my life's on the line and I've got to have somebody take this penalty and I want somebody who's not Michael Bradley, Crosby's on the list. Third on my list is our baby, Jake Elliott. Aw. Field goal kicker, Philadelphia Eagles. I love him. Last seen striping a long field goal in the Super Bowl to put the Eagles up eight in a Super Bowl that they ultimately won. Yeah, a I, I that think... that you said we couldn't trust? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was just... Uh, you mentioned Crosby. It got me triggered. He's young. Yeah. He's young. Elliot was young. He Listen, he... He's fantastic. All right, say, go on. Well, no, quickly, I didn't say, like, if it's an extra point and my left's in the line, I don't want Jake Elliott. But if it's a penalty kick ahead of Bradley, yeah, that'll take Jake Elliott yeah. then. Uh, next on the list would be Carly Lloyd. Uh, proven winner, fantastic soccer player. I trust her from the spot a lot more than Michael Bradley. And candidly, I think Carly Lloyd trusts Carly Lloyd from the spot a lot more than she trusts Michael Bradley. So that's why I'd want her. Okay. And the last athlete on my list, we're reaching back on this one, but I'm going to take Eric Winalda. Now, he's my age at this point, um, mid-40s-ish. Uh, it's going to take some stretching and some balm to get Winalda out there to put this ball in the net. But... Even Eric Winaldo, who hasn't played competitively in a long, long time, I think has the competitive oomph to find the way to score the ball that Michael Bradley has proven time and again that he doesn't have. Uh, any, I'm open to any further suggestions of people you would rather have take this kick over Michael Bradley. I had to think long and hard before I omitted my uh, soon-to-be 12-year-old son, uh, but it's only because he plays defense. No, I, I think your top five is fine. I, I will... I will allow this. The only guy that I think you missed, an egregious miss on your part, is Joel Embiid. Embiid, yeah. Embiid played soccer. He would go up there. Um, if he missed, he would just jam it home, and it it would be awesome. And he he would uh, he would you know kind of calm the calm the crowd's nerves a little bit. And he would just say trust the process. So I think we're first fine. off. I could only take one basketball player, and it did come down to LeBron and Embiid. Uh, it's LeBron's time now. Uh, if I'm doing this list in five years, it's probably Embiid. I'm also worried in that situation that Embiid's going to approach the ball, slip on a blade of grass, and hyper-extend his knee and herniated disc in his back. And that was why I eliminated Embiid from consideration. Ben Simmons would probably do a good job. He'd be nice and clutch, although he might go up there and hit the ball with his wrong foot. Anyway, um, that's a lovely list, Phil. Uh, it's a disappointing result for Toronto. It was an excellent tournament for them. It's a shame to see it end the way that it did. Um, this week coming up, we've got the second leg of the Champions League. Uh, we've, we'll be recapping next week the Serie A matchups, the Serie A standings, and uh, I guess in a week we'll know if Napoli managed to jump over Juventus or if Juventus um, put themselves out in front a little bit uh, if, if they extended their lead over Napoli. Um, until then, uh, this has been Crossing Broad FC, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Make sure that if you are a Philadelphia sports fan, you go on and check out the other shows as part of the network. Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. Snow the Goalie, a hockey podcast, a Flyers podcast. Uh, it's Always Soccer in Philadelphia with Kevin Kincaid. And, um, of course, Crossing Broad, or Crossing Broadcast. Uh, that's me and Kyle Scott from Crossing Broad. And um, until next week, Phil, any wise words for the humans before we leave? Well, as always, hit us up on Twitter. You're Joy on Broad. I'm at Phil Kydell. And questions, comments, always welcome. Make sure you hit up iTunes, hit that five-star review, and uh, tell anyone and everyone you know who likes to follow international soccer that there is a podcast for them, and it is called Crossing Broad FC.